Welcome to the Blue Mountain Center podcast. My name is Luke Nathan, and I'm joined by... Zohar. Hi, Zohar. Hi, Luke. How's it going? Good. What I thought I would talk, we would talk about right now mm-hmm. um, is our relationship with nature. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, and maybe a lot of residents listening at home might know, uh, Ben Strader likes to encourage people to, while they're here to work on their relationship with nature. Yeah, so shout out to Ben Strader. This goes out to you. And so I thought that we would talk a little bit about one thing that's new, a new development in our relationship Mm -hmm. with nature. All right. Um, What do you got? Um, Well, this past weekend we had our alumni residency, and I took uh, five alumni with me to the top of Castle Rock, which is a little mountain across Blue Mountain Lake. Which So we took canoes, we got in our canoes, and we paddled down Eagle Lake and into Blue Mountain Lake and then across the water, and then we docked our boats and we climbed up the mountain. Um, and that was pretty fun. But Ben has been saying to me for months and months, uh, for as long as I've worked here, you know, if it's windy, you have to paddle against the wind and then hug the shore. And I've never known what that meant until this weekend. Um, cause it was really windy. I've never white caps on a freshwater lake. I've never been in a boat in that much wind. And I was honestly a little scared for a little bit, but I, Ben's advice, uh, just kind of seeped into my head in that moment. And I paddled against the wind and I hugged the shore and we all made it. Um, and it felt really good. It was an accomplishment. I have one small question. Yeah. You, you paddled along the shore and into the wind. Did Were the other residents in other boats, not in yours, also privy to that advice, or did they uh, struggle a little bit more than you? So this was very lucky that this was the alumni residency. It was a small group, and pretty much everyone that I went on this trip with had some experience in boats. So... um yeah, they were all they all kind of figured it out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like it would have been a harrowing experience, but I'm glad that you um came out of it without getting capsized. Well, yeah, harrowing, but also fun. Mhm. Well, under the category of harrowing, but also actually it's not really fun at all. <laughs> um I will share my story of my relationship with nature. So, mm-hmm. during this same residency, um we had a final night dance in the boathouse. Mhm. But before that happened, I was informed that there was a raccoon hibernating in the boathouse, um, which it was discovered by a resident who pulled out a sailboat, and lo and behold, there was a raccoon curled up in a ball. Um, So when I came down for the dance party, I wanted to check in on this raccoon, and I shined my flashlight around, and eventually I, I found it. And by this time, there was beginning to be some speculation about the raccoon and whether or not it was actually alive Mm -hmm. and judging from its smell it is not alive and Mm -hmm. yeah good reaction um and it uh yeah so it's still there (laughs) okay (laughs) and um i'm not really sure how big is it it's a healthy size i mean I'm, i'm not too i don't have a lot of experience spotting raccoons in the wild i'd say it's a pretty big raccoon I'd say it's the size of, uh, I don't know, a couple, several footballs taped together. Several footballs taped <laughs> together. Okay. 
Like maybe a small bear cub? Is it that big? Um, I no, it's smaller than a small. I, I don't. Again, these Bigger are references than a bread box, that I don't. Smaller than a small bear. Bread box. See, these are all things that I don't know what they are. Okay. But it's a pretty big. We have record. a bread box in the kitchen. It's that green box oh, with bread in it. Oh, the bread box. Yeah. You said a bread box. Yeah. Well, because that's what you say when you're playing Twenty Questions. Have you ever played 20 Questions before, Luke? No, I've never played 20 okay. Questions. I'll explain it to you later. I've never seen Casablanca. There's a lot of <laughs> obvious things that I've never done or seen. Okay. Um, Zohar, who did you talk to this week? Um, so this week I talked to John Sands. John Sands uh, has been a resident at Blue Mountain Center for long and short residencies a number of times. And he even volunteered on our admissions committee this winter, which was really fun. Um. He is a working poet. Uh, he teaches and he performs and writes poetry um, based in New York City. And his most recent book is The New Queen, which I think was published in the last couple of years. Um, and then he also has a shorter chat book called The Love Hustle. Um, yeah. Uh, that's, that's Was it a I good interview? To. It was a good interview. John and I got really deep. You know, we we talked about adolescence. Uh, We talked about therapy, about love, about hip hop. Well, without further ado, let's listen to Zohar's interview with John Sands. Catching me in the middle of a really intensive editing session in the voice of 17-year-old me with this Mm -hmm. really, I don't know, this story that's kind of been knocking on my door for a couple years now, Mm -hmm. and I've got it scratched out in all these drafts and trying to actually lock it in on Mm -hmm. paper uh, is difficult it's more difficult than Mm -hmm. other projects that i've had that were more about me and my adult life or just the world Mm -hmm. as i see it in my adult life i feel as though i'm trying to i don't know i like see this kid and i want to tell him everything (laughs) and i can't Mm because he's the one talking Mm -hmm. and i almost feel like i'm putting it all into a book so i can just leave him back there yeah no i feel like Something I heard recently on, I guess, a writer was discussing a project, um, a novel that she had written about young adults, and she was talking about that feeling of, like, writing as a character and wanting to mother and take care of them at the same time, but then, like, being, like, having to hold herself back from that because the character wasn't going to develop correctly if she took care of them too much you know sure, yeah it's really that was very interesting to me well it's also you're writing your characters in a i mean we live in a very kind but a cruel and mm-hmm. often dangerous world and i think you maybe do your characters injustice to not subject them to that world yeah and i feel good about that when i write fiction sometimes maybe mm-hmm. i baby my characters a little bit i'm still okay. a little new to the fiction world i'm mostly mm-hmm. have, uh, written poetry but when I'm the character, at least, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's based on me. I don't think mm-hmm. it's, it, I wouldn't call it a memoir. Uh-huh. Um, but I think I'm actually not being very kind. I'm being very cruel. Mm. <laughs> I might actually not be giving him the fairest shake. 
uh, and I have All to be right. careful of yeah. kind of projecting, um, I don't know, projecting negative mm-hmm. things onto this person that mm-hmm. are rooted in adult insecurities and it's making me separate out, uh, uh, I don't know who I am, who he is, how we mm-hmm. become each other. I feel like there's a lot of value in being able to identify the younger voices of who you've been. Because you kind of have to name them in order to know when they surface in your adult life and whether they're guiding you or whether they're afraid or whether they're holding you back or whatever whatever the case is. But you got to name them first, I find. Mm-hmm. So I think that actually sets us up perfectly for one of the first things I wanted to ask you about. Because um, I've noticed, I guess, just from knowing you about a year now and from reading some of your poetry that you're you're interested in adolescence and kind of exploring your past selves. And so I wanted to open this up by hearing you talk a little bit about how you went from being like, and this is my perception and it might be wrong, but like, you know, this kind of popular jock in high school in Cincinnati to like John Poet, uh, John Sands the poet and vegan and interested in identity <laughs> politics and... You know, I just, they feel like two different people, and I want to fill in that space a little bit. I mean, you know, and I think that that's part of me going back and writing about my younger self is to, in a lot of ways, avoid a caricature of who I think I was Mm -hmm. and to find myself back to the accuracy. Mm -hmm. And I just caricatured you. It was a little bit, but you know, I I understand how it would Mm -hmm. present like that. And I think a lot of what this high school look at you know I, mm-hmm. I thought that it would be an evaluation of kind of gender and sexuality mm-hmm. and potentially masculinity which I, which I think it is but it's also really about body size and the way in which uh, one views themselves and how that is enacted onto the world mm-hmm. what do you um, mean can I go back and what did you mean when you said body size body size like I was a chubby kid oh, okay um and it informed so much of my personality. And I don't know exactly what to ascribe to that and what not to, mm-hmm. but I know what it felt like to be in, you know, first grade or fifth grade and have my vocabulary sharp enough to be the one to strike first mm-hmm. so as to avoid being seen. I think uh, I came up with a lot of tools that I Mm -hmm. use as a writer now uh, from really protective ways that I guess I needed in order Mm -hmm. to survive adolescence and then you know you kind of develop your tools and then Mm -hmm. you get to a new stage in your life and you say man you've really protected me in this way Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for you, fifth mm-hmm. grade you, who learned So this. what are some of those tools? I mean, for me, I think it's, I, I think it's my sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I think mm-hmm. it is. I don't know what was learned and what isn't learned, but I uh, certainly craved attention as a kid. And as an adult, that is a power I have to use for good (laughs) or really temper but Mm -hmm. i i think that's also what's kind of fun about looking back at uh 
your adolescence is you kind of see all of your scrambled tools without self-awareness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I think maybe that, maybe my sense of humor, certainly articulation, creativity. Mm-hmm. I feel like so much of it was developed in earnest, but I I guess I'm going back to look at how to separate out who I am from what I learned to protect myself, mm-hmm. um, which I hadn't really thought of, you know? Um, I think I was picked on when I was in, like, first or second grade, and then I quickly sharpened my skills and tried to set up the game as I got older to be able to kind of control a room or work to you know be able to guide the gaze of a room um and i think what i find in in this writing as well is that that was informed by a belief in kind of deficit of self or a belief that at my core i was my body and uh and so it did protect me, but it led to a world of isolation that no longer served me uh, and kind of led me to protect myself from vulnerability in really, really kind of creative ways that didn't present as that. Mm-hmm. Like what, for example? I mean, I don't know exactly as yeah. as a high schooler, but I do know... Certainly as someone who, uh, you know, I tour a lot. I do a lot of readings. I write a lot of personal narrative. There's oftentimes something that feels very vulnerable when I write it. It feels very vulnerable when I read it out loud for the first time. But when I read it out loud for the 20th time, you know, it's certainly it can be present, but it's less vulnerable. But if you're hearing it for the first time, then it appears to be really mm-hmm. vulnerable. And so there's a practice of vulnerability uh, that I don't think is even necessarily bad, but I think it's important to be aware of when you are creating an illusion Mm -hmm. as opposed to actually being out on a limb. And I don't think you can live your whole life out on a limb, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I don't know if that specifically answers your question it sort it sort of answers it i'm and i'm curious to i think get back to i'm interested in sort of the vulnerability of performance and why you choose performance poetry sometimes and written poetry other times but i also i wanted to i guess before we go there ask when you started calling yourself a poet i started calling myself a poet um Relatively late, I think relatively late. I mean, for, I was graduating college. I was going to graduate college, and I was not inspired by what I was studying to be, which was a high school history teacher, mm-hmm. even though history teachers are great. Uh, and I saved up a bunch of money, and my brother and I went on this big trip. I took some time off school. And I just, I brought a journal to really document it. I was trying to pay a lot of attention to everything that was happening in hopes that something would surface to guide me in whatever next direction I wanted to go to. And I remember writing a pretty objectively whack poem, I think. 
about you know a relationship that I had been in that had kind of failed and comparing it to a garden and mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know it's pretty basic. Mm-hmm. And, and was that the first poem you wrote? It was one of the first poems I wrote. I think I actually wrote a poem right before we went on the trip about getting my oil changed. It wasn't mm-hmm. a metaphor. It was just actually getting my oil changed. <laughs> and do you know, do you um, remember why you decided, like, in that moment to poem? Well, I knew I was feeling it. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, let me find out what this emotion is. Let me try and put some words to this so I can understand it. And then... And then I was overcome with the urge to share it. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember pulling my brother aside and nervously saying, I made this and I want to show it to you. And that was vulnerable, but also in some ways spoke it into the world. It was a necessary part of uh, the process to see its existence leaving me and meeting him and maybe just to have somebody look at you and say wow yeah i get it Mm -hmm. wow that's great even though i mean it wasn't a great poem but it was a great moment and you know i came back and finished school and i never stopped writing and i never stopped wanting to share and i guess the orality side of it uh i've never really been able to separate that Mm -hmm. from the uh, craft side of it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I feel like we live in a world where Patricia Smith is the one who said, you know, right whenever you join anything, people want you to kind of declare your allegiance and say that this is what you believe. But, you know, I, I exist in many different worlds, I feel. And I don't think of the poem as one specific thing. I don't think any poem that I've written where I said, man, you know, I don't really think that this exists out loud. Mm-hmm. I've been proved wrong. Uh, and sometimes I hear, you know, I think it's more of a performance piece, but oftentimes that feels as though it masks uh, some undone work in the craft of writing it. All of it works together to build this thing. And poetry it's so much older than the written word that it makes sense to me that it would fit inside of a history that's guided by the rhythm of our bodies and our mouths. And I learn about the poem that I want to put on the page when I say it out loud. I learn what feels like dead language, what feels like it's alive, what feels like it has its finger on a tender pulse of something that I am getting at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess when you are looking at yourself as a younger person, what you're doing and the work you're doing now, do you do you see that John Sands is a poet? Does he strike you in that way? Definitely. Not I mean, yes in the stories that I'm mm-hmm. writing. I'm writing and I'm trying to be honest to his voice, mm-hmm. uh which I think is a poetic voice. Mm-hmm. But uh I see a person who really was desperate for a creative medium mm-hmm. and tried to find it everywhere but wasn't put in a position to really kind of make that step to identify oneself as a writer. Forget who it was that said that. It was like, you know, the only reason that someone's an art. I think it was Jacob Wren. He said the only reason that someone is an artist 
is because someone along the line has told them that they were. <laughs> yeah. Or I, I mean, when I asked you, when did you start calling yourself a poet? It's this, it's something I witness here at Blue Mountain Center a lot is that a big difference between productive people and unproductive people is just the willingness to take that leap and call yourself an artist. Yeah. Well, then you have something to, mm-hmm. I don't know, live up to. I, I don't know exactly yeah. what it is. But, you know, I think it's a combination of having something to live up to. And maybe um, it's just the confidence to think of yourself as an artist. And yeah, but I don't know entirely. Yeah. Still trying to figure that out. And (laughs) I think I spend so much time with creative writing students where, Mm -hmm. you know, I try to really refer to them as poets. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And it's always it's not always people who readily identify as poets. But I say, Mm -hmm. man, you just wrote a poem that makes you a poet. Mm -hmm. You're in the game. (laughs) Uh, Because uh, honestly, you know, even when we did the poetry unit in high school, uh, we weren't referred to as poets, really. I mean, honestly, we were taught poetry as uh, something to appreciate. We were taught the term, you know, alliteration, metaphor, personification as mm-hmm. something to be defined on a test. Uh, a lot of the poems that we read were made by people who had already died. It wasn't really shown to us as this is a lifeblood of who you are. This is happening outside right now. And I even think about the way in which I teach workshops now, which is, you know, taking a really critical look at pieces of text or uh, lyrics to songs. And I think about when I was in high school and we were practicing that critical literacy in my friend group around hip hop music way before I was doing it. In as an educator or as a student, mm-hmm. we would say, man, this poetry class sucks. And then we'd go <laughs> listen to Chronic 2001 mm-hmm. and debate what Dr. Dre was trying to say mm-hmm. about whether or not he was going to stay in the game or whether he was going to leave the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a lot of different interpretations. And that, to me, is critical literacy. That's your brain working around someone else's words you know, projecting yourself onto it in some ways and uh, help using the words as a vehicle to better understand yourself and to also better understand others. And so I just needed someone to connect that dot for me. I needed someone to say, you already, what you're doing when you go into your friend's bedroom and transcribe (laughs) the words to, like, mo' money, mo' problems Uh is that's being a poet that's existing with language when you stop and rewind and stop and rewind and try and get the word exactly right. Yeah. So was hip hop some of the first poetry that you really admired? Yeah. I think hip hop in so many ways, uh, was both a politicizing force. I think hip hop is where I found my way into social justice. Tell me more about that. Um, I mean, at first, I think hip-hop is where I found the creative voices who Mm -hmm. were giving themselves permission to uh, say something in their art, but they were also giving themselves permission to not take themselves too seriously and to have a significant amount of fun. Uh, And in doing that, you know, you listen to most deaf, black on both sides, and you say, man, this is 
from a literary perspective so impressive Mm -hmm. but you also can't turn away from the the conversation of race in america when you listen to that album and as a high schooler you know as a suburban high schooler i don't think i think i was missing a lot of critical building blocks uh and an absence of education around whiteness or identity that i still am struggling to Mm -hmm. catch up with uh to really i don't know fully dive in but it was definitely i don't know fireworks going off that said there's another world out there and you would be a smart man to pay attention Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and that was everywhere those were my heroes. It was Most F. It was Andre 3000 and Big Boy. It was Dr. Dre. It was Eminem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so many others, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that makes it into your poetry in places, too. Correct? I mean, I feel like I've seen references in some of your work. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. References, but also mm-hmm. I think that there's a spirit of mm-hmm. play mm-hmm. in my work that I don't think would be there without hip-hop there's a spirit of spontaneity and not feeling like what you just said has to directly connect to what you say next Mm -hmm. um i feel like there's a permission in hip-hop that uh that i got that i am grateful for Mm -hmm. and then so you talked a little bit just now about how hip-hop kind of it, it politicized you in ways and um i wanted to talk a little bit we say at bmc a lot or harriet says a lot that bmc is about uh it's not just about artists it's about artists in the world and what i think that means to me when i hear it is um that it's about that we invite and build this community with artists who have a vision for a more just world um, and so I guess I wanted to hear, do you think that you have a vision? Is that something that informs your work? Do I have a vision? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I, big question. Right? Yeah. I certainly don't have a planned out vision. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be like a vision for like what the world's going to look like after the revolution. But like, do you, you, you do and I'd like to talk more about the work that you do um, with Poets in Unexpected Places and then um, you do youth mentoring and education and um, this is your it seems as though it's building towards something like you have a set of beliefs about how poetry should exist in a world and how it's going to make the world a better place. I feel very clear on the fact that people's stories matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not necessarily that every single person's story has to matter to you. Mm-hmm. But story does something to a space. I think a story on its own is not a force of judgment and can often contain these vulnerable truths that unlock a space and allow people to acknowledge their own building blocks of how they became who they became. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of really, really powerful social movements right now that don't necessarily involve stories, but do involve 
momentum and the shifting of power in a political and social climate. And I think that that's really inspiring. But I, I also, I hope that the work that we do with the Dialogue Arts Project or with Poets in Unexpected Places serves to supplement and augment that. And I guess basically what we try to offer is that to talk about race in America or to talk about sexuality or body size or one's nation of origin, one kind of can't engage in that conversation no matter you know where they fit on the spectrum of identity without uh, doing a little bit of work about because I think that that's also part of why it becomes so tender so fast is because uh, you know people are bringing so much emotion that is narrative emotion I really believe it's from things that have happened to people um, and from fears that they have and there's something in story that massages fear and lets you hold it and at least not say that you're you know, no longer afraid, but you can at least see it and move forward a little bit. Whether that affects the economic and political structures that kind of prey on uh, the human body's ability to not love itself mm -hmm. uh, in order to use our worst parts against each other and build these structures in order to make people rich and powerful... I don't know if that work is what's going to change those structures of power, but I think it helps. Yeah, well, it also seems like in some of the work that you do that you're trying to teach people to express themselves who who wouldn't otherwise have those tools. Um, hmm. I mean, maybe youth, um, and I know you do work at, at like an AIDS center and needle exchange. Yeah. And, I mean, I definitely believe that art is a basic human right mm -hmm. and that artists deserve to be paid. So it's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, but art exists inside of the syringe exchange mm -hmm. and art exists inside of the public school. And the job of the educator in that way is to shift the lens you know, it's like putting on a different pair of sunglasses and you say, you see, it's been it's been in this room the whole time <laughs> uh, and you can just grab it and use it. You are it. So let's name it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a really, you know, artist or creator. That's an empowering label, uh, in particular, in in places where people wear labels all the time that don't feel empowering, <laughs> mm -hmm. like, for instance, you know drug user or you know mm -hmm. um and so like you said before there's something really empowering about what happens when you say i'm a writer or i'm a poet mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so i want to uh go back a little bit um and we both mentioned poet um pup pups in unexpected places and you're uh, the founding or one of the founding curators. Co-founder, so, yeah. Co-founder. Mm -hmm. So tell me about where that idea came from and how it got started. And So it started in the brain of my friend Samantha Thornhill, who quickly reached out to myself and Adam Faulkner 
and uh, you know the the idea was to try to stretch ourselves by uh allowing poetry to exist inside of public space in all of the ways that we consider public space and allowing public space to transform poetry in all the ways that we think of poetry um and so ultimately where it began was on the subway train so now we've been commissioned as a pedagogic tool and we get you know brought to universities or to high schools we get we've been commissioned by museums and laundromats and pretty That's wild exciting. spaces yeah. it's really really a cool project but it began on the subway and that was uh basically you know eight or nine poets of varying you know ages and identities and backgrounds enter a subway car from different doors and the doors close and one person stands up and maybe it's me and i say you know why can't uh fruit salad eat oh wait why can't ceramic bowls eat fruit salad out of me and or whatever it is and i'm starting this poem and everybody thinks that i'm either crazy or i'm gonna ask them for money or i'm gonna try to convert them to a particular religion and so nobody looks except for the people that i'm on the train with that nobody knows are on the train with me and i get done with this poem and then you know a few people clap or or don't and from the other end of the train my friend samantha then stands up and she starts reading a poem and everyone on the train looks over and says wait, is, is this in solidarity? Is this combative? Are they together? Are they, you know, they just have a lot of questions that mm -hmm. are now not answered. And that curiosity uh, is a bonding force because now they share a curiosity with the other people on the train. And so then they, you know, look across the train and they see, you know, uh, Adam and he's making eye contact with them saying, man, I don't know what's going on. And then Samantha gets done and then Adam gets up and he's singing a song. And you have this moment where everyone on the train wonders, A, now they just don't know who's involved, and they think, am I the only person who did not <laughs> board the Q train uh -huh. uh, prepared to public speak today about who I uh -huh. am? And uh -huh. if it works really, really well, then after you know five or six go, you have this moment where folks think, Maybe it's maybe it's my turn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we've had people get up and dance. We've had people get up and read a poem. We've had people get up and say, hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, I don't know what's going on, but I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and something unlocks in a space that is characterized oftentimes by how crowded it is and how isolated it is. We really actively and rightfully you know, find our privacy on the train because there are so many things that the world wants from us and we don't want to give it, and that's okay. And so to have art act as the kind of romancing tool to a space to at least take a moment and look around and suspect the people around you for being good or suspect that someone might do something positive or say something mm -hmm. that could change your day. It's just a different lens through which to view this train that you ride with other humans every single day. And that's what art does. Art serves that purpose and brings people together. So I think at its core, it's an offering to a space. When we're doing it right, it feels 
as though any installation we do rises up from a space as opposed to, you know, all of us boarding a train and saying, get ready to get poemed. We're going to do it to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that mystery means that it could be them because it could be them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like sometimes it is. Yeah. We actually just uh, incorporated handing out poems. So at the end, you know, we kind of hand out poems to everybody and then we say, okay, your turn. And then somebody always gets up and reads whatever poem they have in their hands, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is powerful. So I also want to, you have brought Poets in Unexpected Places up to the Adirondacks, right? I did. So tell me a little bit about that. Uh, Samantha Thornhill, Adam Faulkner, and I, who are three of five curators of Mm -hmm. Poets in Unexpected Places, the other two are Ilana Bell and Sarita McFadden. Uh, But we were commissioned by the Adirondack Center for Writing to do a three-day school tour so we went to saranac lake high school remsen and old forge and basically the principal knew that we were coming the teachers knew that we were coming but the students did not Mm -hmm. and so we would barge into their classrooms and Mm -hmm. do a quick five minute poetry set (laughs) (laughs) and it was unclear whether we were supposed to or allowed to be there Mm -hmm. and in that sense we kind of created the illusion again that poetry was everywhere in their school and we made these printouts and kind of would get a kid kind of coming back from the bathroom and say hey we're about to go into this classroom and after we get done you need to get on top of this desk and (laughs) read this poem out loud and we even in the schools would you know give the principals some poems to read and so you know the principal would burst into the room and say hey what's going on here and the kids would say oh shit I think (laughs) they're in trouble (laughs) (laughs) and then we'd say that's a little bit of young troublemaker yeah but the principal then would go oh I see (laughs) you see and when I see what you see, the space between us. And they would start to get into mm-hmm. this poem. <laughs> and the kids would just have no idea what was happening. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, it creates this fervor throughout the day that doesn't interrupt the full kind of momentum of a school day, which with testing now is really, really critical. And... Uh, for eighth period in Saranac Lake, I got on the PA system <laughs> <laughs> and uh, made all the made everybody put their hands in the air, and then they had to look at the person next to them and give them a high five on the count of three. So the entire school high gave fives. one high five, and then we invited them to the auditorium for an impromptu assembly, and so all the kids showed up, and then. We didn't have to do kind of the the work of the visiting poet at an assembly of ingratiating ourselves with the student body. They came ready to get into it. And then during the assembly, we were able to really dip into some heavy poems that grappled with, uh, you know, identity, violence, uh, race, sexuality, kind of the building blocks of you know, what folks are 
learning on their own if they're not learning in their classrooms and uh and were able to kind of start that discussion and and they were in they were really really it was a powerful three days mm-hmm. have you done that in new york city too or not in the unique? schools in mm-hmm. new york city we'd like to do it in the schools in new york city but i think as you know safety is and the perception of safety in new york city is mm-hmm. a little bit different and so we were lucky that people here said yes um do you see any relationship between the like educational and work you do with pup um with teenagers and youth to the exploration you're doing of your own youth i definitely think of what i wish someone had told me Mm -hmm. you know i definitely needed someone to be more clear in telling me uh, I don't know how to begin to love myself I don't think I was void of um, advice on kindness you know Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think that self love is a class that should be taught in school (laughs) and it should be taught to adults too and it is it's called therapy (laughs) Um. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's not. It, it's therapy is very expensive. Yeah, right. It's not really taught to many adults. Yeah, it's not a mandatory adult yeah. class, and it should be. Yeah. Um, because I feel as though the older I get, the more I recognize that any objectification, any piece of violence, any vitriol is often emanating from a visitation of the same thing on self. Mm -hmm. You know, like it starts in the self. Uh, And I remember specifically, I I had a, speaking of therapy, (laughs) I um, have a wonderful therapist. And I was at a time where I was really kind of grappling with the body image and my younger self and feeling as though I was this adult and yet I would be in this position where I really was ready to be more vulnerable interpersonally with another person and I would just become hyper aware of my body when it became time to really put myself out there I would feel as though I was 17 year old me Mm -hmm. all over again and the parts of me that I loved would go away I wouldn't be funny or not that that's an objective fact but like I wouldn't be charismatic and anything Mm -hmm. that I loved about me would just kind of turn into a bumbling something Mm -hmm. it was a few years ago and uh you know my friend my therapist my friend uh was say okay well you know we just need to change the uh the energy around this okay you need to change the pattern when you hit that you need to actually put yourself out there And I said, well, that sounds really scary. And so she said, okay, we're going to try this other thing. If you're not going to ask someone out on a date and put yourself out there, uh, specifically like someone who you don't know what their answer will be, Uh uh, then for the next 30 days, you have to uh, find uh, women who you are attracted to and not in a superficial way, but you know, something about them really, really draws you and you have to 
responsibly and respectfully communicate that attraction in one line. You say, hey, that's a really beautiful outfit or I really like your eyes or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And of course, you know, the sensitive new age guy that I am, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I said uh, predictably, oh, but there's a red flag for me. I'm really working on... Uh, the on spotting the ways in which women are objectified mm-hmm. um and and don't want to contribute to that process which mm-hmm. of course sounds great mm-hmm. and uh she said you know you're not going to like what I'm about to say to you but no you're not <laughs> you have objectified yourself you think that you in these moments are only your body or you are only your art or you are only your personality, but you are a full total package that is more than any single uh, part of you. And I think that is in essence what objectification is. Mm -hmm. And she was basically saying you can't help but objectify women or anybody else if you're objectifying self. And mm-hmm. so your way of thinking of yourself uh, guides the way in which you view others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oftentimes what makes it so dangerous is that it fits into these systemic powers of patriarchy and racism or oppression. So you fit your own self-objectification into that and the consequences can be more devastating on others than it is on you, but it emanates from an objectification of self or a lack of love for your whole imperfect and beautiful self. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something I really try to push forward in Mandatory education. Self-love. Yeah. I mean, I think self love, yeah. yeah, I think it comes though from articulation or it yeah. can, mm-hmm. it can come from that. And so I think being able to name what shame is and mm-hmm. uh, not to advocate on its absence, but to get people into a good process of being able to identify, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's helpful. Um, and I think it comes into my classroom for sure. Yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine you're good at that. Mm. Um, so I... Before we wrap up, I um today was sort of a historical day at Blue Mountain Center. History was written. We're living it. Um, there was this new invention. I don't know. Maybe you've heard of it uh, called sand sauce. <laughs> and I was wondering if you might be willing to give a brief cultural history of sand sauce and where what what brought us to this day and this invention. Immediately after boasting about my own salad dressing, I experienced an inevitable backlash just from my concept of where I fit in to the history of Blue Mountain Center. And I just want to say on record, Mm -hmm. all I did was make Ben's salad dressing and add sriracha. (laughs) That was it. And no. so as much mm-hmm. as I will boast about this tonight at dinner mm-hmm. in the backlog of Blue Mountain Center mm-hmm. lore that's recorded in this podcast, mm-hmm. I want to go on record and say that will always be Ben's dressing mm-hmm. in my heart. Well, that was fun. 
Yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. inviting me. I yeah. can't wait to listen to this entire mm-hmm. podcast series. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, right. And we'll expect many royalty checks Good. when it is famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And sponsored by Nature Box. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. We should pretend that it's sponsored by Nature Box. Oh my god! But everyone listens already to too many Nature Box yeah. ads. The Blue Mountain mm-hmm. Center podcast is actually sponsored by Nature Box. We know you want a snack, mm-hmm. and these snacks are mm-hmm. for free. Never get bored of snacking again because it's previously been so boring. Mm-hmm. Go to naturebox.com backslash bmc. See what happens. interview with John. I just want to thank Ben and Harriet for being in charge here at Blue Mountain Center. I want to thank John for talking to me and Luke for making this podcast with me and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.